today I would like to talk about the mission and purpose of Jesus, who was the Messiah. Now during the three and a half year period, when Jesus was actively preaching and, and teaching, there was an amazing amount of activity going on. Uh, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he quieted storms, he cast out demons and proclaimed the coming kingdom of God. Yet out of the tens of thousands and probably more of those he reached, he was misunderstood. They didn't really get him. And he was rejected by almost everybody. Only 120 people were there when the church began. When the church was starting and the Holy Spirit came upon them, there were only 120 people out of all those that Jesus spoke to. Some of that misunderstanding was cleared up later on by the New Testament writings written by the apostles, those who knew him, those who were taught by him. But some of the misunderstanding about his mission and what he's all about and what he was there to accomplish or here to accomplish is still misunderstood even today. Actually, we've even added to the misunderstandings they had with some brand new ones of our own. Is he the wise sage? Is he just a, you know, like a really awesome teacher who gives us the distilled knowledge of humanity in such you know, pithy, potent phrases? Mm. Is he the fighter for social justice and reform and change? Is he the welcoming and accepting friend? Our purpose today is to review the biblical statements about Jesus' mission and purpose as Messiah. Okay. His ministry was to the Jewish people. That's who he was sent to. Uh, let's take a look, though, at Isaiah 53. And verses 2 and 3. A scripture that we'll be probably coming back to uh, several times over the course of the spring holy days. Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3. He, that being the Messiah, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So he was just a regular person. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised 
and we held him in low esteem. So that rejection that I mentioned earlier was expected. I don't think that it was foreordained. People didn't have to reject Jesus, but it was expected. It was expected. And as I mentioned, there were only 120 people. Only 120 people responded to the message and the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now in the flesh, he was a Jew. He had to be something, okay? <laughs> I mean, he had to be of some nationality, some cultural group. He was a Jew, God's chosen people. He was born among a people who had been told in advance that a Messiah would arise from among their own people. But when that Messiah came in the person of Jesus and came with all the signs and the characteristics and the works of the Messiah to verify that it was him, they rejected him and went a step beyond rejecting him. They killed him. I mean, you can, you know, you can say no, and that's, that's one level of rejection, but you can kill someone and that's a whole nother level of rejection. Now the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the powers of the local government there in Jerusalem, the, they were you know, run by the Romans, they were oppressed, but they also had their own government and the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and they kind of ran the show. And they saw Jesus as a threat to their authority. They saw this guy coming along and well, wait a minute, we're in charge, and the Messiah, wait a second, they saw him as a threat to their authority, and so they, they sought to kill him. Now, the, the common people, the common people, well, they, they liked Jesus, you know, and you can read all kinds of episodes that are recorded in the gospel of uh, incidences where he spoke to the people, and the people were listening, and you could just see them drinking it in, and uh, they liked him when he was there to give them free food. <laughs> they, they liked him a lot when he healed them, uh, when he cast out demons, when he put the Pharisees in their place. They liked that. But if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that progressively, as he speaks more and more and more about our shortcomings and the necessity of living up to the high standards of the kingdom of God, about humility and about suffering and about service, they grew less enthusiastic. And in the end, they too turn on him. because he disappointed them. He didn't live up to their dreams and their expectations of, for example, national revival and greatness. Like so many of us today, they wanted him to fix their problems. And that, that, I, I hear that. I, I hear people talk, uh, not necessarily 
people that are here with us today, but I hear people talk about what they're looking for, what they want, what feeds them. And they want, to, they want God to fix their problems. To which God says, and the Messiah said, first, I must fix you. And it makes sense, and you know, we can talk about that more, but I think that's part of the misunderstanding that we see even today when we consider the Messiah and who he was and what he's all about. We want him to fix the problems. But he says, no, I need to fix you, and that'll fix the problems. Now, what were the Jewish people expecting? Because they had all these prophecies and they, they kind of knew some details. What were they expecting? So the, G, the Jews knew the prophecies of a Messiah. And I'm going to use the word Messiah a lot, okay? Now, Messiah means the chosen or the anointed one in, in Hebrew. That's the same thing as Christos or Christ, okay? So when you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus Messiah. They're just saying it in a different language. They mean the same thing. So in this message, I'm going to use the word Messiah. But I just want you to know it means the same thing as, as Christ. When I say Jesus the Messiah, it's the same thing as saying Jesus the Christ. Now the scriptures said that he would be a powerful king who would restore Israel. And that he would rule with righteousness and with justice. Now in the first century, you, this was an oppressed land. They had been conquered. They'd been take to, taken over by the Romans. So that would have meant to the average person forcibly removing the Roman overlords and establishing an independent Jewish kingdom and then leading them on into a restoration of covenant-style prosperity and blessings. Go to Matthew 2. Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2. So what were they expecting? Were they expecting? We'll just go through a few scriptures on this to talk about the expectation that people had about a Messiah. So Matthew 2, verses 1 through 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Now the Magi, it's, it, they're kind of mysterious, right? But the Magi, at least in this person's opinion, my opinion, were probably learned Jews who came from Babylon or that neck of the woods. Men like Daniel, for example. They knew the biblical prophecies. That's what they said. We know the prophecies. We're here to act on them. They knew the scriptures pointed towards a messianic king of the Jews. We're in Matthew 2. Let's drop down to verses 3 through 8. It says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. 
When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So there's a prophecy there coming from Micah. Verse 7 goes on and says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, go, and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. What he really wanted to do was kill him. I don't know, just kill him in his crib, and then we won't have to worry about some king taking over my turf. I mean, I'm king, right? I'm King Herod. Uh-uh, this is not going to happen. So you can, you know, read the rest of it. That was what his plan was. He was a fairly devious guy. The more you know about Herod, the, you know, he's a, he's a scary guy. He's not the kind of person that you, you want to be friends with or enemies with because he both get killed or family members, actually. He was a very, very dangerous guy. So the scriptures here tell us that the priests and the teachers in Jerusalem knew the prophecies. And they knew details about this Messiah, right? They knew the place. They knew the signs that indicated the time. But they didn't know who, right? There were things that weren't known. But they were expecting a Messiah. And there were a lot of details that they knew about. For example, where? Bethlehem. Uh, we're in Matthew now. Go to chapter 22. Matthew 22, verse 42. Okay, uh, I'm going to back up to verse 41. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, okay, guys, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David. They replied, okay. So they knew that the Messiah was going to restore the house of David, right? Basically the political rulers of the independent nation of Israel. This meant that the Messiah would be a king leading the nation ruling in righteousness and justice. There's a lot more prophecy that backs this up. I'm just basically like a stone skipping over the surface here. There's lots of detail, but I'm trying to paint a picture of what these people were expecting. The, the environment into which Jesus was born and grew up in. We're in Matthew, just go back one chapter to 21 verse nine. This is uh, the episode when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he, he's coming and he's been out for a few years preaching, teaching, and now he's coming to Jerusalem. And the expectations are really high because he's doing a lot of this Messiah stuff. Wow, is he going to take it to the next level and, 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 and the king has come and this is all going like, to happen in my own day? It's coming down now? Well, in verse 9, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted out. So he's riding into Jerusalem, and the crowd starts shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. 
Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and the whole city was stirred up. Who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So the people, the crowds, were willing to consider Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, when it looked like he was going to ride into Jerusalem and take over by popular acclaim, by the power of God, by whatever means necessary. If that was what was going down, I'm all in. But the Messiah is more than a king. The Messiah is much more than a king. Jesus' birth, Jesus' life, the timing, the details, the stuff that he did fulfill many Old Testament prophecies. Lots of them. And we've had messages in the past about the aspects or the prophecies of the Messiah that were fulfilled by Jesus. But not all prophecies are fulfilled. Not all the prophecies are fulfilled. Regarding the mission and the purpose of the Messiah, there's a fork in the road. You know, there's this path and you see it, and you're walking down the path, and all is great, and then suddenly it takes off in two different directions. Which way do I go? One path leads to kingship and the establishment of God's rule in glory and power. Let's, let's take a look at some of that. Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. And he will rule on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. One more. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and through 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains, and it will be exalted above the hills. And all nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, "Let come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways so we may walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Oh, wow, that's good stuff, right? So that's one of the, one of the forks in the road, all right? And I, I, I think, you know, reading these verses, we can understand why the Jewish people might have become frustrated with Jesus. 
Here he is, he appears, he's got all these signs of being the Messiah. It's all there. He's the real deal. He's the package, but he doesn't walk down this path. What's up with that? That's the path they expected him to take based on prophecies. Now the other path is very different. The other path leads to a priesthood perfected by suffering and able to offer up his own life as a complete sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. Go to Psalm 110. Verse 4. A well-worn prophecy of the Messiah, and we're just going to pluck this little detail out of it in verse 4. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, O Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now let's go back to Isaiah 53. So he's a priest. Now Isaiah 53, where we were before. Same basic concept from a different angle somewhat. <clears throat> Speaking of the Messiah says, Surely he took upon himself our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, peace with God, was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. And so he did not open his mouth. He did not complain. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? Who was there to protest for him? Even his buddies denied him, right? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was punished. And he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And though he had done no violence, nor was deceit in his mouth. So the Jewish people knew these scriptures, but they found them very confusing. They did not have what I would call a satisfactory workout on how this was all going to happen. They knew that this was also in the whole package of the Messiah, but what does it mean? How could one Messiah coming at a specific place and moment in time accomplish both seemingly incompatible missions? I mean, a king has to, he has to be alive to rule. But a sacrifice 
has to die to atone for sin. There's a, there's a problem here. There's a, what, what? How can it be both? The solution. I hope this is not overly complex. I, I could have added an arrow along there. Um, anyways, food for thought. The solution, the solution was not obvious. It, it didn't just leap off the pages of scripture as to what this all meant and how it was going to make sense. We understand it now. You go, oh yeah, well I get it. I know, I know where he's headed with all this. You know it how? By hindsight, through the teaching of the apostles and the church. And where did the apostles and the church get this understanding? Anyone? Well, let's take a look at Luke 24. Verse 25. This is the, um, Jesus has been executed. He has risen. These two men, our followers, are walking down the road, headed to this town called Emmaus. And Jesus appears to them, and they don't know exactly what's going on. But he says to them, this, this, this risen Christ, this risen Messiah, says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to, slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. Now drop down to verse 46 uh, through 49. Then he appears to the disciples. Uh, I'm going to start verse 45. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures and he told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things, and I'm going to send you that what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So the understanding that we have about the mission of the Messiah and how this can all work out, and how you can go down two different divergent paths, is something that we get from the Messiah himself, and which is passed on to the church, and the church has a responsibility to pass it on to others. So in hindsight, as I said, we now understand that the prophecy had two layers of fulfillment. Two layers of fulfillment. One, the Messiah would come to perform the function of priest and sacrifice. Two, the Messiah would come a second time to assume the function of king, administering the will of God on earth. Now, there's an interval in there. There's the first coming and there's the second coming. And there's an interval in between. And that, that interval, the appointed time between those two, is what the Bible calls these last days. The age of the church. Go to Acts 2. Peter is especially fond of this phrase. 
Acts 2, verse 17. In these last days, so he's saying this is the first message that given, ever given in the New Covenant Church. In these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Something big's happening. The age of the church. Now, during this interim period, before the administration of God's will on earth, the Messiah is actually continuing working. He did some stuff here in the first time, priest, sacrifice. He's going to do stuff in the future, king, ruling in glory. But he has a present purpose. And he performs that purpose through his church, of course. His present purpose, well, I've, I've, I mean, how can I do it justice? But I broke it down into three points. I see. There has to be a satisfactory calling to repentance. The task of proclaiming that has been given to the church. We have a job, which is we need to preach repentance to people. That's the part of Jesus' message that they didn't like as much. Okay, just so you know. That's part of our job. Uh, we also see one of the things being accomplished is a satisfactory explanation of the atonement for sin, which was accomplished through Jesus' death. The task of proclaiming and explaining has been given to the church. We're not the only ones who do that. Other people kind of really, really, really focus on that aspect of it. And then three, three is kind of what happens when one and two have already started happening. The third thing is this calling to repentance, this explanation of the atonement for sin leads to a calling and a choosing. God chooses some to participate in the coming kingdom and have a future as uh, not only members of the family of God, but as administrators seated with the Messiah, helping him in that final phase, administering with perfect righteousness and justice. Now the sequencing of the Messiah's work shows God's way of thinking, God's wisdom, because this is a sequence, all right? It happens in time, one event before the other. If an atonement capable of covering all sins had not preceded the time of rule. So if you didn't have this before you have that, then the time when the Messiah comes to enforce righteousness and justice would be very different. The Messiah would only be able to condemn and punish sinners. That's all he would be able to do. To rule in righteousness and justice means sin needs to be punished. And since everyone sins, and since the just penalty for sin is death, <laughs> everyone in such a kingdom, every human being in such a kingdom ends up dead. everyone would have to be put to death. But 
now, because we've had a sacrifice for sin, when the Messiah comes to rule, he can apply mercy and forgiveness in a manner that Paul talks about in Romans, in a manner that allows him to uphold justice and righteousness because the penalty for sin does get paid, but at the same time allows life through mercy and forgiveness. So I think the sequence is important and significant. That's why both the paths on the road are not pursued at the same time. One comes before the other. I think sometimes, I mean, I, I know I, I wonder, why is the interval so long? I don't have the answer for that. Let's take a look at some of the things that Jesus said about his role as Messiah. Go to Mark 1, verse 15. Mark 1, verse 15. Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And he, he said this a lot. This was his message. Repent and believe because the kingdom of God is near. And so I, I, I put it to you though, considering all the expectations and all the baggage that's in the, in the backdrop of you know, the common man, the Pharisees, the scribes, everybody, um, Jesus' words could have easily led them to expect a political coup or a miraculous overthrow of their Roman oppressors. I mean, he just, he just said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is here. Okay, so they could say, all right, it's going down, it's happening now. But he also held back their expectations, knowing that the Messiah had important tasks to accomplish beforehand so that the future kingdom of God could work in a manner that didn't bring about death and condemnation for everybody. So Jesus, one thing, didn't go around announcing to everybody that he was the Messiah. He didn't get up on top of the mountain and say, I am the Messiah. Though so Luke 4, verse 41, Luke 4, verse 41. Uh, this is, uh, there's a healing going on here, okay? And this is a casting out of demons. And so the demons are cast out. And in verse 41 it says, So when the demons came out of many people, they shouted, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Right. Keep it down. Matthew 16. Verse 15. He's speaking with the disciples here, and he asks them, okay, so uh, who am I? Verse 15, what about you guys, he asks. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
Now, uh, let's go to verse 20. He speaks a little bit more about that. And then in verse 20, it says, Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Okay, guys? I mean, they knew it from the beginning. If you go back and look at the calling of the um, disciples, they knew he was the Messiah. They knew what was happening. And he charged them with this. He said, don't make this a big deal. Okay? Um, on the other hand, though, he didn't deny that he was the Messiah. It's the truth. So, <laughs> Matthew 11. Matthew 11. And verses 2 through 6. When John, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to him, are you the one that is to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So John asks, are you the Messiah? And what does he do? He says, I'm doing all the Messiah stuff. Right time, right place, right signs. Okay. Now, even on occasion, he would privately accept the title of Messiah. Think of the time when he sat down with the woman at the well. She said, you're the Messiah. And he said, you're right, I am. To me, it's notable that he, he made that acknowledgement to someone who was not a Jew, but there are other instances where he doesn't deny that he's the Messiah. And publicly, he avoided allowing the public to drive the bus. He didn't allow the surge of emotions and uh, all the expectations determine which appointed tasks the Messiah would perform and in what order. I mean, they wanted to jump right over to the whole king thing and, you know, getting Israel back on top. Uh, John 6, verse 14. John 6, verse 14. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, they were going to grab him, you know, put him up on their shoulders and march into Jerusalem, uh, he withdrew. He, he got out of there. And he went to a mountain to be alone. Now, Jesus knew what the people were expecting from their Messiah. But the Messiah's real mission and purpose at that time was that of a priest and an atoning sacrifice, a layer of messianic prophecy that the people, even the great teachers like Gamaliel, did not see. They saw that there was a conflict there, but they didn't understand how it would be resolved. Now, had Jesus gone about loudly proclaiming that he was the Messiah, 
which was true. He, he probably would have sparked a popular uprising among the Jews. Things would have started snowballing and moving along. And this would have provoked immediate confrontation with all the Jewish leaders, the Roman authorities, and thereby uh, bringing about his execution before the appointed time. It, it actually had an appointed time. It needed to happen when it was going to happen. And it needed to happen according to the will of the Father. Yet, when it was time, when the time did come, Jesus affirmed to both the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities that he was indeed the promised Messiah. Let's look at Jesus' statements about kingship. Mark 14. And verse 61 through 64. So Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, which we heard about a little earlier, this you know, body of, of leadership in the area. He was before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest asked him, verse 61, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's kind of an allusion to the whole next step, the, the coming of the you know, Mighty King. But their response is, well, the high priest then tore his clothes, which was a sign of outrage and mourning, and how can this happen? And he said, why do we need any more witnesses? Okay, this is it. We, ha we don't need to hear any more. This man is a blasphemer. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. So they asked Jesus point blank, are you the Messiah? And he gave an honest answer. And because he told the truth, they decided that he was worthy of death. That is his great sin, telling them, <laughs> telling them the truth. Now, <clears throat> to the Jew, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, meant virtually the same thing as king. There was more, there was more, but it basically meant the same thing as king. But what about non-Jews? What about these Roman guys? Messiah? They didn't care about stuff like that. What, what's a Messiah? Luke 23 Because he would appear before the Romans. Once the wheels of the court began to turn, he was, he was caught on this inevitable conveyor belt, if you will. So let's take a look at Luke 23, verse 2, which says, okay. And they began to accuse him. This is all those, those uh, men of the Sanhedrin, and they bring him to the Roman authorities. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. So they made this clarification for this guy, Pilate, who's a Roman, said, He claims to be the Messiah, which means, you know, like king. So the, the, the Jewish leadership here made the connection 
for him. They connected the dots between Messiah and King. So this man, Pilate, who was a Roman, would understand. And they hoped that he would then see Jesus as a threat to the Roman government and then do the dirty work of killing him. Now, Pilate was concerned about this allegation, asks Jesus about the charge, John 18. John 18, verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and he asked him, okay, so are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, is that your idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, reported, uh, retorted Pilate. What is truth? Come on. Who knows the truth? All we know is what we can see, what you're doing. Now, Pilate's impression was that Caesar's kingdom was under no real threat from this metaphysical babbler. And he's just going on about truth and what? Do you want to seize power or not? I mean, when, when Jesus answers him, he basically, you know, he says, is that your idea or what you're hearing from others? You know, because according to what the Jews believe about me being a king and a Messiah, yeah. But you, a Roman, what you think of as a king, not so much. If my kingdom were of that world, then there'd be fighting. That's what he kind of answers him. Yet, in the end, the Jews manipulated Pilate into executing Jesus on the grounds that he claimed to be a king. We're in John, go to chapter 19, verse 12 through 22. So from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept on shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. You're in a bind, Pilate. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. And it was the day of the preparation of the Passover and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, and this is the crowd, remember? Take him away. Take him away and crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar. Well, there it is. Finally, it's out in the open. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. 
So the soldiers took charge of Jesus and, they car- and he carried his own cross and he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, each one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. And Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, and the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't, no, no, don't write this, King of the Jews, but say that he claimed to be the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, I've written what I've written. Now go to John 1. John chapter 1, verse 11 through 13. Talking about Jesus, of course, you know, he's writing in hindsight here. John is looking at the big picture. It says in verse 11 through 13, He, Jesus, Messiah, Christ, came to that which was his own. He came to his own people, his own tribe, his own flesh, people who looked like him, talked the same language, people who were his own, but his own did not receive him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So some people believed him. Children born not of blood, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So he was rejected by his own, He was killed, and his sacrifice made it possible for human beings to be saved from death and to enter into the family of God and to live together with him in peace. Without that sacrifice, none of that stuff happens. There is no kingdom of God for you or me or anyone else to be part of without that atoning sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Messiah. Now, some of the prophecies of the Messiah's kingship remain unfulfilled. Some of them do. We read read prophecies of the Messiah that talk about all the great king things he's going to do. Those aren't done yet, are they? Many of the prophecies concerning the the Messiah, his suffering, uh, his role in redeeming human lives from the penalty of sin were fulfilled in Jesus' life and in the flesh. And they're backed up by the testimony of eyewitnesses who were willing to die so that these things could be heard and known. And they're a testimony that you have written now. They're a testimony, their, their deaths, their willingness to die is a testimony to the authority and truth of the Bible written in human history. Yet, the future prophecies of the Messiah are still out there, waiting. They haven't been fulfilled yet. The Messiah will return to rule in power and glory and righteousness, justice, mercy, and he will teach the way of peace and he will settle disputes. These are some of the things prophesied. And he will teach people to live according to the will of God and the law of God, as we read, will go forth from his throne. 
And at the completion of these last days, boom, there comes this transition referred to as the day of the Lord. The moment of impact, boom, <laughs> when the Messiah does return in power and glory to rule on earth. Now, Peter refers to that, that future age that comes later as, as the, uh, oh, I didn't write it down there. He calls that the uh, times of refreshing. Let's go to Acts 3. We've covered this recently in our readings. Acts 3, verse 13. <clears throat> There's just been a, a healing. People are amazed. People are drawing around. There's a crowd. Peter uses the opportunity and, and he says this to them. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. And you, all of you, handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. And you disowned the holy and righteous one, and you asked that a murderer be released to you. And you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses to this. And by faith... In the name of Jesus, this man who you see, this man that was healed, was made strong. And it's in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, and so did your teachers. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God. Now that you know what this was all about, that this was the Messiah, this is what he had to do, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord so that we can move on to that next awesome phase. And that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He'll send the Messiah again, and those times of refreshing will come. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. So for those who believe Jesus' death makes a positive future possible. His risen life, his motivation, put on the mind of Christ, to develop the fruits of the Spirit, to do the works God has appointed for us to do, and to prepare to assist the Messiah in administering the will of God on earth. Knowing that the Messiah will come as king, we accept his rule over our lives now. We submit to his authority now and later. <laughs> and we abide by his rules now, and we prepare ourselves for the day when he does return. Now, to those who disbelieve, the ongoing proclamation of the Messiah's work, past, present, and future, will be considered fair warning. God has not done these things in secret. It's not a mystical experience. And the Messiah will be justified in what he does when he returns regarding punishment and condemnation of this present evil age. 
I put it to you that his mission is still misunderstood. And I, I hear this from people. You know, we kind of live in a little bubble sometimes. We only talk to each other about spiritual, religious things. But I hear this. What is his mission? What is Jesus all about? Is he a great teacher who distills the best of human wisdom? Is he a model for social justice and reform of this present age? Is he the welcoming and open-minded friend? Are we still looking for him to fix the world and fix our problems? The scriptures say that he's here to fix us. He is our redeemer from the punishment of death and he is our coming king. Last, let's close with a scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, brothers and sisters, verse 1, about times and dates we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that the day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light. Enlightenment. You know, it's, the, the, the understanding is open to you. And children of the day, and we do not belong to the night or the darkness, so then... Let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day when the sun shines, be sober. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath when the Messiah returns, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He died so that whether we are asleep or awake, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing now.